0: open up to Ephesians chapter 1. We're walking through Ephesians, and and we're going to cover again something that we talked about last week, but that I wanted to spend a little bit more time on, because it's so important in the message of Ephesians. And frankly, it's really, really important to us. And I think it's something that as Christians, we miss a lot. And so I want to look at just two verses, verses 9 and 10. So as you're turning there or or as you're there already, I want you to imagine walking up to a house and you're going up to that house and you're knocking on the front door. Now what is about to happen after you knock on that front door depends on a few factors. Who is the person who lives in the house? If, If the person is somebody that sometime in your past, a rift developed between the two of you. And this person is now somebody maybe you would even call an enemy. Well, that confrontation when that door opens could be very difficult. Maybe you don't know the person behind the door at all. Maybe you were driving along and, you know, you dropped an M&M or something and you're reaching to pick it up and crunch, scratch, and you hit the car on the side of the road. And you're walking up to that house for the owner of that car and you're knocking to say, I just hit your car. So you're going to have a different sort of encounter when that door opens. Maybe the person in the house is somebody in authority over you, somebody that's really important. Maybe it's your boss. Maybe it's the CEO of your company and you're somewhere down the totem pole and you've got these great ideas and you're really hoping to share it with the boss and you'll see what happens when that door opens. So part of the situation is determined by who is behind the door a lot of the situation is going to be known as soon as that door is open and how that person responds. If you hear from behind the door kind of a gravelly voice shout out, go away, (laughs) you know this isn't going well. If you hear dog barking behind the door, you know, and, and, and somebody kind of holding back a big dog, you know this is not going well. If you hear the dog barking behind you on the front lawn, you really know this is not going to go well. If the person cracks open the door and sort of looks out at you like this and says, what do you want? Who are you? You know they don't know who you are. You're you're a stranger to them and they're, they're cautious. They're skeptical. But if the door opens wide and they say, come in. Man, just come on in. I've been waiting. I'm so glad you're here. Come on in. You know you've just been greeted warmly. You know that person is glad to see you. And wants you to come into their home. Last week we looked at these first ten verses of Ephesians about our new identity in Christ. Today we're just going to look at the last two verses of this first passage. Verses nine and ten. I'll put it up here for you or you can follow along in your Bibles. We're kind of jumping in mid-sentence, but it says he, and it's referring to God, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. What does it mean to believe? What does it mean to have faith in Jesus? What does it mean to be religious? What does it mean to be a Christian? I think often we have this picture of, at some point I invited Jesus into my life. I invited Jesus into my heart. We use that phrase often. And and I get it. It's a good phrase as far as it goes. But we have this idea so often of here's my life and all the different compartments. I am a father. I am a husband. I am a worker. I am involved in my community. I am a neighbor. I am all these different things. Maybe I have hobbies and things like that. All these different aspects of my life. And now I'm also a Christian. And Jesus has come into my life, and I've made a space for him. And he's in my life along with all these other things. And so we've invited Jesus into our life. I believe in Ephesians we see something completely different than that. That it is not us that is inviting Jesus into our life. It is Jesus inviting us into his life. And he's saying, come in. Come in to this eternal plan that my Father has had from eternity past to eternity future. I want you right there with me. I want you to come and be a part of that. And every aspect of our life, our relationships, our work, our free time, every part of it becomes redefined and made new in Jesus Christ. We don't just add Christ onto our lives. Christ brings us into His. So God has this incredible plan, and it's summed up in these two verses. To be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. I love the passage that Dennis read. I love those verses in Job. Because if you're ever struggling, or should be struggling, thinking too much of yourself, you should pick up and read the last couple chapters of Job. Because he goes on and on and on. Who are you? Who are you, Job? Where were you when I made this? How did I do this? Do you know? Can you tell me? He goes on and on and on. And then it's like he pauses for a break. And Job goes, I'm sorry, God, I I won't speak again. And God sort of says, no, I'm not done yet. And he keeps going. And I think we need that reminder. Who do we think we are? So in the one sense, we need to understand it's God. God's life that he's inviting us into. It's his plan. He's not just coming in and sort of blessing our plan. He's saying, I have a plan for you. Come in and trust me. But the other side of that, like knocking on a door, is the way he opens that door to us, shows us how much he loves us, how much he wants us to be with him, how much he says, come in. So we're going to look at this great plan of God. We're going to look at the concept that runs throughout Scripture of the kingdom of God. Because it's summed up in many different ways in many different places, but I believe that's what Paul is talking about here. God has a kingdom. And it's spoken about in creation. It's spoken about in the Old Testament. It's spoken about in the New Testament. It's spoken about in Revelation. From eternity past to eternity future, God has a plan to set up His kingdom on earth. So let's look at the beginning of this kingdom. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be flipping around a lot this morning. So if you just hang a right a couple pages, you should hit Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. Colossians is considered sort of a sister book to Ephesians because they cover a lot of the same material. And it's nice to be able to look back and forth because Something that Paul may not have explained in great detail in Ephesians, he might explain more in Colossians. And I believe that's what we have here. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. The Son, listen to what this says about Jesus. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Is there anything according to that passage that Jesus is not sovereign over? No. So what this is saying is that Christ was there in the very beginning and all things were created through him And for him, he was created or I'm sorry, he all things were created for him to be the king over all things. You with me so far? Now, this is powerful because it means that God didn't just create the world, wind it up and say, go have fun. I think it's easy for us, whether purposefully or on accident, to have that picture of our lives and our world. Well, we're just sort of on our own to figure it out. That's not the way God created things. He created all things purposefully. He did it through Jesus Christ. He did it for Jesus Christ. And it is only in Jesus Christ that all things find their meaning and their purpose. This is God's great plan. God created all things, including you, including me, including this messed up world that we live in, to have Christ as our King, to live in the kingdom of His love, His power, and His authority, It's the way things are meant to be. So we have this beginning in creation of God setting up this perfect plan in Christ. And then we come to the kingdom betrayed. Take a left to Romans. Romans chapter 1. Because here we were created to live in this perfect kingdom with our perfect king. And yet, look at what Romans 1 says we did with that. Verses 18 through 23. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... His eternal power and divine nature have clearly been seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. then listen to what happened. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds, and animals, and reptiles. Now you might be scratching your head going, "Wow, what? I can't remember the last time I bowed down to a bird. I mean, this isn't really resonating with me. Let me put it in words that I think should resonate throughout all time. They exchanged God for not God. They exchanged God as the most important thing in the world the being that holds all things together, the being for whom all of us are created. They exchanged that being and that concept of God and his authority and rule over their life for anything else. You can put anything in that place. And that would be what Scripture calls idolatry, the worship of something else. Now again, you might say, well, wait a minute, I'm here. I'm here on Sunday morning. I mean, I'm worshiping God. How do we spend our money? How do we spend our time? How do we set our priorities in our life? What are we most concerned with? What are we most fearful of? What determines what we're doing on a day-to-day basis? That's where you're going to find what you're worshiping, not just what you do on Sunday morning. Worship is giving that place of authority to something in your life and then following that. And so if after you leave this place, you're checking out with God and saying, I put in my time. Now I've got to be a good businessman, a good mother, a good, a good worker, whatever it is that you're doing. Now I have to do these things. And whatever it takes to get these things done, that's what I have to do. And your faith and all the Sunday morning stuff gets left behind. Well, then guess what? You're not worshiping God during the week. You've exchanged God for not God. Maybe you're saying, well, my life is just hard and there's certain things I, I have to do to get by and I, I know God says it's not right, I know he says it's not good, but, but it's good for me and it's what I need. Well, then you've just taken God's standard of what he says is right and true and just and you've exchanged it with your standard. So now not only have you changed God for not God, you've changed God for you, <laughs> who, by the way, is not God, in case that wasn't clear. This is the great exchange. It's the great betrayal that we were created to live in this perfect kingdom under the perfect king. And we said, I'd like to call a substitution. God, if you could just move to the side, I'll put something else in your place that works for me a little bit better. We live in a world that takes great joy in that. That says you need to find out what works for you. You just need to find what makes you happy. We have created a plethora of options to replace God with. A whole menu that you can choose from. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, this is described very much in kingdom terms. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, the following, and following its desires and thoughts, like the rest we were by nature deserving of wrath. People look at that and say, oh, God is so mean. How can he do that? How can he punish sinners? Picture this. Picture a perfect king who loves his people perfectly. He provides everything for them. And he sets up a kingdom. And he gives them everything that they need. Within that kingdom, a group of people join together and they say, we are against the king." We will do everything we can to fight the king. We will ignore the king and his edicts and his laws and his taxes and his rules. We don't want the king. And they build their kingdom and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger with this in his boundaries. What's the king going to do? Well, I just love those people. I'll just let them be. Oh, sure, they're hurting themselves. Oh, sure, they're missing out on all that I have for them, but I'll just let them be. Is that the loving thing? Parents, is that how we treat our children? When they're running after something that is less than what they should have? When they're running after things that they think will fulfill them in this world? And they're hurting themselves? Do we just say, well, as long as they're happy, that momentary happy might lead to a long-term agony. And God loves us too much for that. And so God steps in and he does something about it. This rebel kingdom that grows in God's kingdom will not stand. And so we come to the kingdom restored. Let's continue on in chapter 2 of Ephesians and look at verses 4 through 10. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. We're going to look at this passage on Easter morning. I think the beginning of chapter 2 of Ephesians is such an appropriate passage for Easter morning. But for our purposes here, I want you to see how God restores his kingdom. He doesn't do it just by stepping in and squashing the rebellion. He does it by sending His Son into the rebels to live among them so that we can know who He is. He is Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. He came to be with us, to live among us. Jesus said, when you see me, you see the Father. Hebrews starts off by saying, long ago in many different ways God spoke to us, but now but now He sent His Son that we could know Him. But He didn't just come so that we could know God. He came to pay the price for our rebellion. He came to take the punishment that we deserved for that rebellion. In Christ, in the cross and the empty grave, is the great invitation of God saying to the sinners of the world and the rebels, come in. This God that should be standing at the door shouting out to us, go away, get away from me. It's God opening the door wide. I've been waiting for you. I've done everything to prepare for this moment. This was my great plan. Come in. The kingdom is restored in Jesus Christ. Turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 verses 17 through 19. Paul takes this idea of Christ and his salvation and he relates it all the way back to Adam. God set up this kingdom and he put Adam and Eve in it to oversee, to kind of rule over it. and Adam and Eve blew it. But Christ restores God's purposes. And so Paul picks up on this in Romans chapter 15, I'm sorry, Romans chapter five verses seventeen through 19. he says this. For if by the trespass of the one man death reign through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Do you see God not giving up on his plan? you see God having one plan from beginning to end and culminating it, bringing it all together in Jesus Christ? And so the kingdom is restored. Which brings us to now, where is the kingdom now? Because we can read a passage like Ephesians where it says all things will come together in Christ. We can think, yeah, that's great. One day, someday Christ is coming back and and that day everything will be made perfect. That's one way of looking at it. Some other well-meaning people say, no, no, the kingdom is now and it's our job to bring the kingdom right now. And so we've got to do everything we can to bring God's kingdom to earth so we're going to change this world to look like God's kingdom. And the question is, who's right? And in a way, both are right. But in a way, both are wrong as well. So let's look at the kingdom now. Look at Matthew chapter 6, all the way back at the beginning of the New Testament. Some of you are in the Sunday school class going through the Sermon on the Mount. And you'll look at some of these things. Matthew chapter 6 in particular, verses 31 through 33. Jesus is talking about worrying. He's talking about running after all these things that we think we need and trying to find fulfillment, trying to meet all of our needs. And and we can get so busy just scurrying about, saying, I need my food, I need clothing, I need this, I need my Starbucks, whatever it is, basic elements of life. I need these things. And we're consumed with it. And so all our other priorities get reorganized underneath these things that we are so consumed with. And Jesus says, I'll start in verse 25 of chapter 6, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you by worrying at a single hour to your life, and why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. And his righteousness and all of these things will be given to you as well. Jesus came preaching the kingdom of heaven is here. So there is an aspect of this kingdom that is not just somewhere out there. It is right here now, alive and well. In fact, it's doing more than just being here. If you flip to the right a couple chapters to Matthew chapter 13, there's a whole chapter of parables, little stories that, Jesus uses object lessons, be a good modern example, to teach an important truth. And every single one of these is about the kingdom. He starts in verses 1 through 23, and he has this parable of the sower, or sometimes known as the parable of the soils. And he starts off. And he tells this story about a farmer scattering seeds. And he says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Some of the seed falls on good soil, a lot of it falls on bad soil, and the stuff that falls on bad soil doesn't grow. Then in verses 24 to 30, he tells them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. Then he says, but among that good seed and the good crop that grew up, a bunch of weeds grew up as well. And the farmer lets them grow until the end when they will be separated. In verses 30 through 35, Or 31 through 35, he says the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. And he says it's like this little tiny seed. And yet when you plant it, it becomes quite a large tree. And it grows. It starts small and it seems insignificant, but it grows. In verses 44 through 46, he uses this illustration of a hidden treasure and a pearl. He says the kingdom of heaven is so important that right now all these things that you're chasing after, you should be willing to sell it all. If that's what it takes to be in the kingdom. Because that's how important the kingdom is. And then 47 through 52, he says, once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net. And all these fish are caught in the net. And at some point, the fishermen have to separate out the good fish from the bad fish. From these parables that Jesus is saying, we understand that the kingdom is not some far off distant thing. It is something that is growing in this world now it's something that began when jesus came to this earth and announced salvation through himself and so it's here and it's now but how turn back to ephesians chapter one fingers getting tired yet it's good to get some exercise it's okay i should have had you stretched In Ephesians 1.10, he's talking about bringing unity to all things under Christ. And then look at what he says in verses 22 through 23. He kind of expands upon this. And God placed under, or, all things under his feet, speaking of Christ, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Paul links this concept of the kingdom that is growing in the world with you and with me if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. He says, you are the kingdom in this world. It's growing in you. Wherever you are, you are living on behalf of this great kingdom. We become ambassadors, members of a kingdom, representatives of a kingdom, but living in a foreign land. But I love the truth of those parables. The kingdom is growing. As Christians, I think we can get so timid and so scared. Oh, it's all going to fall apart. Oh, the church is going to fail. Oh, the membership is declining. Guess what? God's kingdom will never fail. Never. And quite frankly, God's kingdom is not completely dependent upon the membership in churches. Because there are a lot of people that are sitting in churches that have just added Jesus onto their life and then going about their way. But there are those that have said, He's my King. I will follow Him. That's a difficult thing to say and to trust in. And so the church becomes this living, breathing example of the Kingdom of God at work. But we also have to understand, we're an imperfect example. But we need to be able to say to others, do you want to see the gospel at work? Come and see how we relate with each other. And I've got to say often, the church, at least the church in America that I'm most familiar with, not always very good at that. We're so isolated and setting up our own little kingdoms as a church and our own little banner and our own little logos and our own little denominations. And it's sort of like, hey, come and see what we can do. And it should be instead, come and see what God is doing. It's one of the reasons, honestly, I love this church. If I could brag a little bit. You guys love each other. And when we come in, I don't feel like there's a bunch of cliques and everybody's just doing their own thing. We're in it together because we realize it's not our church, it's Christ's church. It's not our kingdom, it's His kingdom. And when we talk about other churches here, we talk about them as our brothers and sisters in Christ. I can't believe it when I read Christian leadership uh, literature and they speak about other churches in the area like competition. Really? Like if you want to do better than them, this is what you should do. I don't want to do better than them. I want them to be great. I want us to be great. More than anything, I want Christ to be great. And if we have to look pretty pathetic to make Christ great, I'm cool with that. Because sometimes that's the way God works. In Ephesians chapter 2, toward the end, verses 11 through 22, Paul talks about this reconciliation between Jews and Gentiles. And, And I'm looking forward to this passage, and yet I'm very scared about it, because it's this idea of this racial tension in the world in this time period that nobody could have fathomed anything could have solved. Jews were Jews, Gentiles were Gentiles, never the twain did meet. They were so diametrically opposed to each other. And yet Paul says the church has become a living, breathing demonstration of the kingdom through the gospel, and that should be seen in the way Jews and Gentiles treat each other. And so we've got to look at our own world and say, what are some things that people would say there's no way for reconciliation there? There's no way for these two groups of people to come together. And then to apply the gospel to say that to that, and to say, but in Christ, look at what can happen. And we're going to look at some different and difficult issues. In chapter two, verses nineteen through twenty, Paul applies this growing, building terminology of God's plan to the kingdom. He says, consequently, listen to what he says about you. If you're a follower of Christ, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens. Remember at the beginning of chapter two, he just said, you're dead in your transgressions and you're under God's wrath. So the big change between that and this passage is Jesus Christ. is a living, breathing, messy demonstration of the plan of God to bring all things together under Jesus Christ. So we don't come together to say, hey, what do you want? What do I want? What makes you happy? What makes me happy? How do we work all this out? We come together to say, who's our king? Jesus Christ. What does he want? And we'll take everything we want and we'll realign it or throw it away so that we can follow Jesus Christ but we must also be careful because as I said earlier, some Christians get so caught up in building the kingdom now, we forget an important aspect that there is yet a kingdom to come. We are still ambassadors in a foreign land and there is a kingdom that is coming. Scripture is quite clear that there is a time when Christ will return and He will set up His perfect, visible kingdom on this earth and all the rebel kingdoms will be wiped away. Turn to Revelation chapter 21. We go to this passage often because I think it is such an important perspective for us to keep as Christians that this world is not our home the way it is now. That our goal is not to fix this world. It's to point people to Jesus Christ who can fix them and is going to come and set up His kingdom. And so listen to the kingdom that will last forever. The kingdom that is coming. Then I saw a new heaven. This is 21, verse 1 of Revelation. saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And He will dwell with them. And they will be His people and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne... See the kingdom there? Because He's on a throne. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then He said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. is present in the church. But the greatness of the kingdom is yet to come. The greatness of the kingdom when every knee will bow and understand Jesus is the perfect king is yet to come. This is still in the future. And so we must have this perspective of the coming kingdom and it must give us a sense of urgency that those who will be a part of that kingdom are those who have accepted Jesus now. We have the opportunity as ambassadors of Christ to share that message, to say on behalf of God through Christ, come in. Come in. Come into the kingdom that God is calling you to. Come into the kingdom that He has planned for. Come into the kingdom that He has made possible through Jesus Christ. Come into the kingdom that is coming and will last forever. So what does it mean that God will bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ? It means God has a plan. And the entirety of that plan is through Jesus Christ. To have church without Christ is meaningless. To be a Christian without Christ being your all in all is meaningless. To just add Jesus on your life as, as another slice that makes you a good and well-rounded person is meaningless. meaningless. He's either your king or he's nothing. And so we need to listen as God says to us. Come in. Now does this mean everyone will be saved? If all things in heaven and on earth will find their their fulfillment in Christ, does that mean, well, everybody's going to heaven? And the answer is no. Because the Bible is very clear on that. Even the parables that we looked at talked about separations. I want you to imagine a city of instruments. Instead of people, there's a bunch of instruments walking around. There's a a cello and a French horn, and there's some drums over here. They're kind of off on their own because they're really loud. And there's an oboe. Nobody hangs out with the oboe because they're annoying. But they're all walking around. Sorry if you played oboe. Squeaky and awful. Um, And they're all walking around doing their own thing. But there's nobody to play them. And one day, a musician comes into the village, and he sees these instruments walking around, and one by one, he picks them up and plays this beautiful music. Some of them are so deeply offended by it. Hey, get your hands off me. Who do you think you are? This is weird. Give me some space, man. Don't touch me. And they go off, and they do their own thing. But some of the instruments, when they're picked up and they played, they say we... We've never felt like this before. There's something about what's happening here that helps me to realize this is who I am. This is what I was made for. I finally figured out this is my meaning in this world. That's what it means for all things to be summed up in Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean all will be included and find joy in that. But it does mean in Christ all things find their purpose whether they choose to admit it or not. One day Christ will come back one day we will experience that kingdom to its fulfillment. And those who are in Christ will say, yes, this is what I was made for. This is what I was saved for. This was God's plan from eternity past to eternity future, and I got to be a part of it. I started with the illustration of going to someone's house and knocking. The powerful truth of Scripture is that God came to us when we were rebels when we were saying to Him, get out, when we were trying to hold the door shut, He came and He knocked a powerful knock. And He sent His Son to come to us to say, I want to be in with you and I want you to be in with me. Ultimately, He's not knocking to just say, add me on to your life. He's knocking to say, all I have is yours through Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, like the book of Job, I think so often we have such a small view. Those last couple chapters just challenge us as they did Job. And then throughout Scripture, we see you filling in so many details. This great picture of who we are in Jesus Christ. This great picture of your plan from eternity past to eternity future. This great plan that you have come to us and said, Come in. I've done everything necessary and possible. I've been waiting for this moment. Come in. God, to think that we who are rebels in your kingdom, we who are sinners under your wrath, would be invited through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to be ambassadors on your behalf is unthinkable. Except by your grace. Except by your mercy. And except for the fact that it was your great plan. And so, Father, may we understand our place in history that we sit here this morning not as people just trying to get by, but as people that through Christ, those who have accepted Christ as their king and their savior, we have a place in this plan. And we become your instruments now. To live among ourselves and through each other in our relationships, to be a living demonstration of the gospel at work, the kingdom here and now through our actions out in our community, in our homes, in our places of work, to offer that salvation, that invitation to the kingdom, to all who will believe. And to be people who are looking forward to the kingdom that is coming. And to be able to look forward to it and say, come Lord Jesus. It is in your name we pray. Amen.